At Mercy Village Church, we are loving, abiding, and going. That's how we state our core values concisely. But each of those three core values is stated in its own robust sentence that gets at the fuller meaning. So in this sermon series titled Roots and Fruits, we're examining each of our core values and the why and the what behind each one. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. All right, if you're from Appalachia, or if, you, uh, if you're from Appalachia and you hear somebody say Appalachia, you know they're not from Appalachia, right? Now, there's exceptions. I'm not saying that that can never happen, but generally speaking, that's culturally the wrong way to say it. I don't even know the right way to pronounce it technically, but culturally, it's Appalachia, like a latch. Also, if somebody says they're from around here, but then you hear them say hurricane, hurricane, <laughs> they may be pronouncing it correctly, but culturally they're pronouncing it incorrectly. They may not be from around here or only recently arrived in this area. I know a man who calls pepperoni rolls pizza rolls. Now, I know some of y'all just got goosebumps and anger about that. I understand. I felt the same way originally, too. The police are going to get him right now <laughs> for that crime. But the truth is, he's not from around here. And so I say that, and what's the point? Well, the point is that there's litmus test, right? Now, litmus test has a scientific understanding to it, but I'm not smart enough to tell you about that. I know how we use it, though. When we say litmus test, we mean that, that if you do something a certain way or don't do something a certain way, or you say a certain thing or don't say a certain thing, etc., etc., it's evidence of who you are or where you're from or the truth of, of what you're claiming. And so that can be true with, with very silly things like how we say the word Appalachia. That can also be true about very serious things, like what we'll talk about today as we go to 1 John chapter 4. And we wrap up talking about our first of three core values at Mercy Village Church. And what we'll see today in 1 John chapter 4 is that those who truly know God will love people truly. Those who truly know God will love people people truly, and the result will be more people truly knowing God. That's what John chapter 4 verses 7 through 12 is all about. Or to state it negatively, those who do not truly love others do not truly know God. That's a little bit of a harsher way to say it, but that's true. So just like the way you pronounce Appalachia reveals whether or not you are from Appalachia, the way we love others reveals, it testifies to our intimate knowledge, our intellectual knowledge of God. Those who truly know God will love people truly, and the result will be more people truly knowing God. Father, in this place right now, how sweet it is to hear these voices lifted in honor to you. You are worthy of it and so much more. But we come asking you for more. That today, what we know not, you will teach us in your good grace. What we are not, but, but are longing to be as people, you will make us. 
And what we have not, but desperately need, you will give us in this place today with our Bibles open as we behold you and who you are. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're, we're finishing up our very first core value today. And, and Josh actually uh, told it to us at the beginning uh, before we sang. Our first core value is stated like this. We are loved by God. And we will love God fully and people selflessly. So we're in week three because we broke it down into sections. We started with we are loved by God. We went to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And we saw the deep, um, immeasurable, unstoppable love of God for his children. We are loved by God. Fact. Two, we will love God fully. Last week we spent time in what's called the Shema in Hebrew, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and the command that we would love God with all our heart, soul, and might. So we looked at that. We will love God fully. This week we turn to the last part of our first core value. We will love people selflessly. And that's exactly the order that it needs to go in, by the way. Uh, chronologically, that's how love works. Love starts with God. It must begin with Him. It flows out of Him. We'll see that even more clearly today, that God is the spring of all true love, the fountain of all true love. He initiates it. And then in His love, He calls us, and we saw last week, equips us to love Him in return, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. He, he actually writes it on the epicenter of who we are as the children of God to love him with all that we are. That's who we are, not just called to be as children of God. It is who we have been transformed into being, people who love God. And then and only then, we love others. We love our neighbor, we love the one another's within the church of God. That's how it flows. That's how it flows chronologically, that's how it flows supernaturally, that's how it flows practically. It starts with God, his love for us, then our love for him, and then our love for others. And the order matters. But today we'll see something interesting, that there is one category, one way in which the order gets slightly disrupted. When it comes to the evidence of God's love, oftentimes, chronologically, in the timeline, the first revelation of God's love that many people see is the love of his people. Before they know who Jesus is and know his love, before they know who God is and know his love, they see the love of God's people. Now, that doesn't make the love of God's people the greatest thing. Jesus' love is by far the most supreme, first place as far as worth and value. But oftentimes in the timeline, the first thing that the people uh, who come to know God see is the love of God's people for one another and for each other. And oftentimes, and maybe you've had some of these conversations, those who have given up on God... Those who have given up on the church have cited not seeing love for one another and love for others within the church. And so today we talk about that very first evidence that so many people see. And what we'll see 
is that love is the litmus test in verses 7 through 8. Verses 7 and 8 show us that love is the litmus test of knowing God. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. That's two words in, in Greek. And, and I want to say this, right, because I, I love the original languages, but I don't, I've never studied them. Here's a tip. There's this place called the blueletterbible.com. You can go to it online. There's like 20 different translations of the Bible there. You can click on different words. You can see the original meaning and the original language, whether it's Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament, Aramaic sometimes. You can go. You can see it. You can hear the probably American pronunciation of the words even, uh, given that's why I butcher so many words. Because, But my point is this. There's so much at our fingertips right now as the people of God. You don't need me to reveal to you the meaning of Scripture. The Holy Spirit can do that. And there's ample tools out there for you to use. So I don't say this to, to sound smart, right? That's, I mean, if you've known me long enough, you know that's not true. But it's two words in Greek. Agape toy, agapomen. That's it. Just boom, boom. Back to back. Translated beloved, let us Love And what John is getting at, and why I think that's so awesome, that it's just those two words, boom, boom, is that in two words, John says what we're trying to say in a, in a core value that is, that is over a dozen words long. Beloved reminds us that we are loved by God. Beloved reminds us that God's love initiates this relationship, and out of that we are to love one another. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and, and knows God. So he talks about how love is the litmus test of us knowing God, and he, he makes a few observations here, three of them in fact. The first is, he says, it comes from God. He is the originator of love. We've, we've uh, been beating that horse for three straight weeks that it has to start with God. Verse 8 will tell us that God is love. He is the source and the origin. See, John just took a DNA test. Turns out he's 100% that certain that love is from God. That in the helix, see what I did there? Thank you. I, I know some of you who are listening to inappropriate music know what I'm doing there. That's right. I'll pray for you. I'm just joking. But the primary component, if you will, right, like you know a DNA helix, the primary component of the DNA helix of God is love. And so if your DNA is to match his DNA, then love must be present in the DNA. Or you don't match. You're not of the family of God unless love is present in your DNA. Second, he says it's the primary family trait. Now, DNA, right, is something you don't see. It's, it's inside of you. Family traits are things like, and you maybe you get this, when people meet your kids, oh, they've got their nose, they've got your eyes, or when people meet your parents, they might say similar, try to figure out who looks like who, those family traits. Or when you get older, right, and maybe you get married, you have this loving, uh, great opportunity to instead of necessarily critiquing each other in a helpful way, you can say you're just like your mother. 
or you're just like your father whenever they do things that annoy you. That's all very helpful. I definitely recommend that. That's sarcasm. Don't do that. <laughs> but those are family traits. They, they reveal, right? They, we resemble the family. So God says love is a, is a family trait. It's not just the DNA that matches. It's the, the characteristics that match. Love is, love is at the top of the list of characteristics by which we will be known to belong to God. And, and third, and this is my favorite, and, and this one will preach, it's, it's the grading scale of our theology. Love, right? Not seminary grades, okay? Not how well you did at Bible trivia when you were, if you came up in church and did a want or something like that. That's not the grading scale. The grading scale of our theology is our love for others. That's convicting. Because I run in circles as a pastor where knowledge of God, in particular academic knowledge of God, is, is highly valued. We like to name drop professors. We like to throw around big words. We like to lay down uh, big ideas and, and try to teach everyone something new and original all the time. I had a, a pastor one time in my younger years tell me that if I was going to ever succeed as a pastor, I had to establish myself as the Bible expert. That in every room I was in, I had to be the smartest man in the room. That's what would make me a good pastor. John would say, no, that's incorrect. I say, I say we intentionally, when I critique this behavior, because I'm guilty of it. Listen, Adam Ramsey, he's a pastor in Australia I, I follow. He said this, I saw him post this the other day. He said, I love theology and learning. It's so important. But you don't need a degree to point people to Jesus. If we're being honest, most of us as Christians are theologically educated well beyond our present level of obedience. We know more than we do. We've learned so much and, and we can, can regurgitate so much information, but we're out in front of our skis when it comes to loving one another and loving our neighbor. We're not doing that. John would say it like this, most of us as Christians are theologically educated well beyond our present level of love. He would probably elaborate and say, you know, words and ideas. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's like a, a clanging gong. You, you, can, you can say all these things about God, but you don't really know God. The measure is how you love. You might have fancy speech for who he is. And what he's done, right? But listen, real friends, true friends, will finish each other's sentences. You've been around those people, it's really annoying. They'll finish each other's sentences. They know where to find you on Tuesday at 10 a.m. They know where to find you on Saturday at 4 p.m. They know you that way. They have an intimate knowledge of you. They can go to Starbucks, through line at Starbucks, and order exactly what it is that you want. They know you. At that level. They know the difference between your genuine laugh and your polite laugh. I could go on and on. You get the point. You see, this verse 7 isn't just about 
intellectual knowledge of God. It's about an intimate knowledge of God. It's knowing him like a bride and a groom know each other. It's about intimacy. Because I could rattle off a bunch of facts about my wife, where she's from, some of the things that she likes, how old she is, how much she weighs. Just kidding, I wouldn't say that. But I could tell you all these facts about my bride. But beyond that is intimacy. I know her. We have seen each other emotionally unclothed. We have seen each other mentally and spiritually unclothed. We are intimately, we intimately know one another. So loving others isn't the grading scale for your head knowledge alone. It's the grading scale for your intimacy with God. If your theological pursuits aren't growing both your head and your heart, then it's time to mix up the process. Because at the end of the day, the grading scale for your theology is your love for others. That's why Paul can so directly flip the truth on its head and say in the negative, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the same thing he just said, but he's saying it in reverse. He's saying it in the negative sense. If we don't love each other, right, in this body, if we don't love each other in our families, if, if we don't love each other in our neighborhoods, we don't share God's DNA. If we don't love one another, we don't bear any family resemblance. If we don't love one another, then our theology is busted. Our knowledge of God is off. So verses 7 and 8 are hard. They shine their light on me. And when they shine their light on me, I see that so much is lacking. That I come up so short. That I don't love people like I should. That's why verses 9 and 10 are so important because verses 9 and 10 point us past ourselves to someone else who gets love right. Verses 9 and 10 show us that love starts with God. We know that and it shines brightest through Jesus. Verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John makes this argument or, or makes this statement rooted in two realities, right? He is, he is revealing to us that we won't understand true love by looking at ourselves. We will understand true love by looking beyond ourselves to Jesus. And he says it this way. Two things. Love starts with God. We've been hammering that for three weeks. But be comforted by this today. God's love for you is not dependent on your love for him. If you grew up like I did in a fundamentalist background, where your activity for God said so much about who you were in relationship to God. You need to hear that today. God's love for you, 
I'm, I got to say it to myself. I'm 36. I got to say it to me. I still get choked up when I say it to me. That's how deep in me performative, right? The performative earning of God's love is that deep into my soul that I have to be reminded again. Be comforted today. God's love for you is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your love for him. So rest easy. Second, he points to Jesus. He says the primary, ultimate, top level example of God's love is Jesus. Jesus is the way that God's love is made manifest, it's revealed, it's brought to bear right in front of us. If God is love, prove it. If God is love, show me. And John Stott says it like this, The coming of Christ is therefore a concrete historical revelation of God's love. For love, agape, you know that word, if, if anyone knows a Greek word, it's probably that one. Agape, and he defines what it means, is self-sacrificing. That's the type of love agape is. It's self-sacrificing, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost, and a greater self uh, and a greater self-giving than God's gift of his son there has never been nor could be. It is the ultimate example of self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And he tells us why it is. He lists three reasons why there is no better example. First, he says, it's his only son that he gives. Right? There was no greater uh, gift than Jesus based on who Jesus is. But there's also no greater gift based on the fact that there was no one else. He only had one son. And he gave him. He gave his only son. Two, he is Savior. There's nothing about his death written explicitly in that verse. But he's come to rescue. He's come to bring atonement. And so in that, you see the second part of the proof. He's going to die. Jesus, God isn't just giving his only son to come and serve. He isn't just giving his only son to, to come and, and be among uh, the people on earth. He's giving his only son to die on behalf of his people for their atonement. Sorry, right, we'll get this. Don't worry. So, the third thing he says is not only that he dies, but who he dies for. He reminds us of the great contrast that we see here. Like, he didn't come to die for people who are worthy. He came to die for people who are unworthy. You and me, namely us. So you won't see it on the screen, but the next quote by John Stott as he goes on, he says, In the ancient world outside of Christianity, it was thought appropriate to love only those who were regarded as worthy of being loved. But God loves sinners who are unworthy of his love and indeed subject to his wrath. He loved us and sent his son to rescue us. Not because we are lovable, but because he is love. That's the point. So the greatness of his love is seen in the costliness of his self-sacrifice for the wholly undeserving. A clearer manifestation of God's love could not be imagined. And that's the truth. And so in Jesus, we see a God, we see that God gave his only son, he didn't just give his only son, he gave his only son to die. And he didn't just give his only son to die, he gave his only son to die for those who are unworthy. Those who don't deserve it. 
And this matters deeply to who we are as the children of God. So it's that simple. It really is. God loves us, and he tells us that love is the litmus test for whether or not we actually know him. And then he says, I'll remind you what love looks like, and he points us to Jesus. So how do we respond? What's our response in the wake of that? Well, the final two verses show us that love love is the way. This is the calling on us today. Verse 11 reminds us and shows us that love is the way of acting like God, of imitating him. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're imitators at heart. It's true, we're made to imitate. If you've ever done art, or you've ever done sports, or you've ever done singing, or whatever, you... you find inspiration in others, and and you will begin to, at least in some ways, imitate them. As a parent, right, you'll catch yourself saying things that your mom or your dad used to say. We're imitators by nature, and the imitation that we were made for in the core of our cell, right, God wired us to be imitators, and the imitation we were made for is the imitation of God's love for us. In Jesus, we are to be mimickers of God's love with our hands, with our feet, with our voices, with our eyes, with our thoughts, with all that we are. John finishes this thought in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love is the way that God's love is reflected to the people around us. And his, thought is the, his, his train of thought is this. One, nobody's ever seen God. Okay, so Moses kind of almost got there. He kind of saw the backside of God as he went by. But, but relatively speaking, nobody has ever seen God. Even John himself will be kind of caught up into this dream of heaven, and there he will see God's robe, but he won't actually see God. So, so uh, that's where John starts his train of thought. Nobody sees God. So how is it revealed to us that God is love? Well, Jesus did it. He just talked about that. We saw Jesus' love. He was the actual physical revelation of God's love. But now Jesus has ascended back into heaven. But what it, John is saying is if we love one another, God abides in us. If we love one another, God is present in us. His presence in the world today is revealed in the people of God loving each other. His presence in the world today is revealed by the people of God loving their neighbor. God's character and likeness and love is revealed to the world around us in that way. Our love for one another can be incarnational. Right? God with skin on. God being present for people to see in the world is done through us loving one another. And then Paul finishes, or Paul, John finishes by saying this. If we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. This is massive. Because this means that your love for your neighbor 
And your love for one another is not just some residual after effect of God accomplishing a, a plan. But it is actually the perfecting of his plan. Your love for one another and your love for your neighbor is an integral part of God's plan. His love is perfected in us. God's perfect plan is that his love for us would be made manifest through us in our love for one another. See, John was there when Jesus said these words in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Sound familiar? That's the sh uh, from the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. On these two command, to commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's a huge claim. That everything... Do you hear what he's saying? Everything in this book, cover to cover, every command, every desire, every wish that God has for his children can be summed up, love God and love others. If you were to make a spreadsheet of everything that God requires of his children, there would only be two columns, and everything would fit into one or both of those columns. Love God and love others. That's it. And it all hangs on that. Every single bit hangs on those two things. God's plan from eternity past was that the physical revelation of his love that would take up the most space in history would be his people loving each other, and loving their neighbor. That was his plan. So this isn't just some like feel-good thing. This isn't like some Sunday school lesson, like, why are we talking about loving others? We've been talking about that since we were like three years old. Well, the reason is we don't do it, because we, right? Like, we don't get the, the weight, the gravity of what God is saying. God is saying that my plan for this world finds its perfecting in the love of God's people for one another and for the world. So that's why that's our number one core value. We are loved by God and we will love God fully and love people selflessly because in a, in a nutshell, that's the whole thing. All our other core values actually find their place up under this one. It's the total sum. Love God. And love others. So what do we do with these, these teachings? It's only five verses. They're heavy. What do we do with them? Two things. One, let's check ourselves. As we leave this place today, let's, let's check ourselves. Do a self-assessment of who you are. First question. Do you really know God? You could ask that same question this way. Do you love others? Because if you don't love others, then the answer to if you know God is also no. It's the same question. But on the flip side, a word of caution. Do you really know love? I have to say this as we close this sermon. 
Because love is everywhere in our society. The word, at least. There's a thousand different ways of defining it. Everyone wants to say that this is love and this isn't love. And then the next person will say, well, actually, that is loving and, and this isn't loving. If you do this with your kids, that's not love. And then the next expert says, well, actually it is. And what, what, what does love even look like? Do you really know love? Well, it's the same question. Do you really know God? But be careful because there's two extremes that happen here. Especially within the people of God, you have one group of people that just get on the knowledge train. They want to know God. And so they just they spend all their time trying to fill their heads with knowledge. They really know their Bibles. Those people really know their Bibles, but, but I don't really feel at home with them. It doesn't feel like family, but man, they're smart. And I'm getting smarter by listening and, and being a part of it, but, but they're not really serving the community. That's one extreme. But there is another extreme on the opposite end, those who uh, value loving people but don't value knowing God. They haven't opened their Bible in weeks. Nobody talks about sin. Everything is feel-good and affirming and, and in a positive outlook. And catchphrases abound in these groups of people. But it's like swimming in the kiddie pool. I've heard it said a dozen times, by people from these types of circles that, hey, theology's good, but loving people is what we really need. Theology's important, but loving people, that's what really matters. And John would say, hold on. If you can't know God unless you're loving one another, then the opposite would be true, too. The reverse would be, you can't truly love others unless you know God. So... Your knowledge of God is checked by your love for others. And your love for others is checked by your knowledge of God. If your love for others is out of step with the knowledge of God, then you're not truly loving people the right way. And if your knowledge of God is out of step with loving others, then your knowledge of God is out of whack. So those are the two extremes. Which one's yours? Which way do you fade, right? You fade towards kind of misunderstanding what love is, and you're just so loving that you don't really maybe love like God has called us to, or, or is it the other? You want knowledge, 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 and you fail to, to love others. Adjust, but don't swing like a pendulum. We need both. We must know God and love others. We must love others and know God. Same thing. It starts among us, one another, and it must include our neighbor. And lastly, Jesus is not just the example. He's the empowerment. When he closes out or when he's in the middle talking about Jesus, he says that the love that we see is in Christ. And he uses this word, propitiation, in verse 10. Propitiation is a big word uh, that just means the act of appeasing someone who's angry at someone else. And God the Father... And it's loving to say this, God the Father is angry at sin, and sin will be punished. The wrath of God will be poured out on sin, but Jesus becomes the propitiation, the appeasement of that wrath on the cross. He dies on the cross so that the wrath of God against sin can be poured out on him instead of us. And that's how we can come to know Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead and you'll be saved.
to know Jesus today. If you're not a Christian, you can only love God through Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you can only be loved by God eternally in heaven through Jesus. You can only be empowered to love God through Jesus. You can only be empowered to love others through Jesus. So know Jesus. If you're not a Christian, trust him today. If you are a Christian, know him. Pick up your Bible. Read about him. I forget who it was. There's somebody, a famous Christian, he read the Gospels all the time, and somebody asked him about, you know, why do you spend so much time there? And he said something to the effect of, I, I want to know Jesus so well that when I, when I come into to heaven one day, it's like meeting an old friend. Know Jesus like that. And that will set you off to be able to love others. Those who truly know God will love people truly. And the result will be more people truly knowing God. And this beautiful way of living is ours only through Jesus. I feel like it's hard to do justice for something so elementary to so many of us. Our core value, our very first core value is so elementary. But it will take a lifetime and beyond for us to truly understand the magnitude of what it means to be loved by God. What it truly means to love God in return. And what it truly means to love one another and love our neighbor. So may we never give up on that pursuit. And may we, may we pursue it together as the people of God every day. Father, I, I know that you're better than my words. Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you and your good kindness will move in all of our hearts, convicting us of where we come up short, but not in a way that crushes us, but in a way that leads us to the cross where we see your, uh, the love of God the Father displayed so beautifully. That in this moment, even as we take communion, that, we will be, be, that you will bring to mind in our hearts and in our, and in our minds the places where we, even this very week, have failed to love one another and failed to love others, but as we hold in our hands the, uh, the symbols of Christ's broken body and shed blood, we will be comforted in that place. That we can repent and receive forgiveness that is, that is beyond anything that we could, could ask or imagine. And we'll embrace that in this moment. And in that, we will also feel empowered to walk out of these doors and through the power of Jesus to love one another and love our neighbor. That we would be marked as Mercy Village Church, no matter how small or large we become, that they would say of us, oh, how they loved each other. That they would say of us, that church loves people. And that in that, you, God the Father, would be revealed to the people in our neighborhoods and the people on our streets and the people in our families and the people in our communities. For your glory. For the fame of your son, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.